Hi, Brett Nelty here. If you thought last year's Wellness Summit was big, just wait for the 2016 edition. New speakers, incredible venue, world-class exhibitors, and 1,000 of your closest wellness enthusiasts hanging around all in one place. A strictly limited number of two-for-one tickets have just been released, so get in whilst you can enjoy the Wellness Summit for less than $10 per hour. We haven't released any tickets for quite some time, and this block of tickets are available right now. All you have to do is go to thewellnesssummit.com. That's thewellnesssummit.com. Enter your name and your details, and then mark off your calendar for the 10th and 11th of September in your diary, and we'll see you at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Center for the biggest wellness event of the year. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Wellness Women Radio for the women with big dreams who dare to be different and who want to thrive in health, work and play. Dr. Ashley Bond and Dr. Andrea Huddleston bring you a weekly podcast to help you master true health and create an exceptional life. This is episode 26. Welcome to Wellness in Radio. I'm Ashley. And I'm Andrea. And each week we bring you topics and information to help you unlock your inner wellness one. Today's episode is an interesting episode because we're going to be discussing uh, all things gluten, including gluten sensitivity, um, celiac disease, and gluten-free diets, and the common sensitivities and issues we have surrounding gluten. Have you tried a gluten-free diet? Have you, you know, had success from that? Or is it still an ongoing problem? regarding gut health and gut uh, function. And we're pretty much going to be asking and hopefully answering the question, is this whole gluten sensitivity issue, is it a real thing? So does this actually exist or is it uh, a bit of a media fad? Well, I think we can certainly clarify that it's not a media fad. There's generally true statistics saying that one in 70 Australians are experiencing celiac disease and further to that, there is up to 60% people in that category that still haven't been diagnosed. So there's a lot of people walking around with undiagnosed celiac disease who are suffering symptoms and may not have had the appropriate tests to confirm uh, their diagnosis, which would in fact improve the quality of their life and benefit their health because then they can make changes that are going to get them feeling good again and stop that horrendous and enormous immune response that's driving down their health and well-being. So what are some of the classic examples of um, gut-mediated responses that would indicate there is a problem with your possibly sensitivity to food or gut function? That's a, that's a really good question. And we need to delineate a couple of different things here. So one is what is actually celiac disease? And this is an autoimmune mediated disease. So it's an actual disease process that is identifiable and testable. Um, although testing methods uh, may not be as accurate as what we would like, but we're going to walk you through that in a moment. Um, celiac disease pretty much affects the uh, intestinal lining. And within your intestines, you've got all of these finger-like structures called your villi and each of them help to absorb all the nutrients for your food that then become you know your new fingernails your new skin cells your new muscle cells so you know you are what you eat it's that cliche for a reason uh and the the little finger-like structures kind of if you imagine your shag pile on your carpet and uh this is what they look like and in celiac disease what happens is with the amount of inflammation and the immune response if you're still having gluten in your diet, these little filis uh, get worn down. They can't absorb nutrients appropriately enough. At the very end stage of the disease, you will have what's called total villus atrophy, which means you're, there's no more shag in your 
your rug anymore. It's almost like flat carpet. So the finger-like structures actually uh, completely degenerate. You have increased intestinal permeability, which is what we know is leaky gut syndrome, or that's the um, you know the slang for it. And there's a whole host of concomitant conditions that go with it. But classically, um, especially in children, the symptoms would be things like a failure to thrive, so malnutrition, malabsorption, um, stunted growth. But more classically, the gastrointestinal symptoms like bloating, pain, diarrhea, constipation, nausea, vomiting. Um, it can be things you might not expect, such as lethargy, migraines. Yeah. Or yeah. maybe you've had you know, subsequent tests showing uh, there's insufficiency in minerals. Yeah. And so it could be a deficiency that you're actually showing up with and repeated iron or um, deficiencies indicating you're not absorbing could be, again, indication that this uh, atrophy of the villi has created a malabsorption. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is a pathological autoimmune disease. Um, my little sister, Joanna, is actually celiac. Uh, she was diagnosed when she was about eight years old and she had the classic symptoms. So she was a very small kid, um, you know, and this was... 20 odd years ago that she was diagnosed so back then uh, celiac disease was not nearly as well known as what it is today um, it was only by fluke chance that we figured out that that's what was actually going on she had all the testing done it came back as positive but her major symptom was actually leg pain so for a long time it was thought of as growing pains um, you know a whole bunch of different uh, musculoskeletal disorders but that is the symptom that was most ripe for her was uh, yeah the leg pain so it can affect every system of the body and I have a lot of clients that have anemia as a key symptom of intolerances. Did your sister experience such a thing? Did she have anemia through her life? Yes, yeah, she did. Absolutely. Um, she had the full spectrum of uh, the malabsorption, malnutrition um, symptoms, really. And even now, she certainly does have some issues with iron absorption. And we're wondering if that is still prevalent from when she was still exposed to gluten in her first eight years of life. And if she's still recovering from the effects of that now, because, you know, like I said, it wasn't that well known uh, back sort of 20 years ago, but certainly it is now. And the incidence of gluten um, or sorry, celiac disease has increased by 400% over the last 50 years. That's a phenomenal jump and big increase. In now, is that just because of increased detection or do we think it's more increased prevalence, meaning that it's actually more a problem across the population in Australia here? I think it's both. I think it's a result of the fact that our immune system is very different now to even what it was 50 years ago. The food is different now to what it was 50 years ago. Our chemical exposure is so much more now than what it was then as well. So our body has got so much more to deal with. Our immune system certainly has a lot more to deal with as well because of all of those environmental factors. And even if just the food that we're eating is different, it's going to have an immune response on our body. And this is why uh, I think that everybody is now presenting with a full spectrum of different food intolerances uh, that are you know, higher than they've ever been before. Nowadays, kids can't go to school with peanuts. They can't go to school with uh, you know, eggs and, and milk products and those sorts of things because food sensitivities are so prevalent. 
And that's, I think, really important as well that we define those differences because the three things we've got to define here is celiac disease, which is the true autoimmune response Mm -hmm. to the sensitivity of gluten, which creates an autoimmune response in the body. And it's a genetic foundation to that. So if you don't have a positive genetic test of HLA, DQ2 and DQ8, then you can't have celiac disease. But on the flip side, you can have those genetic markers and not present with celiac disease. So, again, that's when it dives into you know the idea of your genes don't automatically determine your health destiny. Mm-hmm. There's environmental factors that regulate the on and off switches in your genetics that will determine whether or not you present. So in a family, every family member may be positive for the celiac markers of HLA genes. However, not every one of them may present with full-blown celiac symptoms and autoimmune responses. But then on the flip side, they may present with the full spectrum of uh, you know, gastrointestinal symptoms, um, you know, even uh, other symptomatology as well. They may test negative to celiac disease and negative to all the autoimmune markers because the testing itself is not as specific as what it should be okay so let's break that down now so you can get a bit of an understanding as to why you know and you may have been in this situation as well where you've presented to your conventional physician you've described a whole plethora of gastrointestinal upsets and they have tested you maybe for celiac disease or gluten sensitivity they've said to you nope you're absolutely fine um, but you know there's still a problem and generally we find that in that situation a lot of the times my clients will talk to me about these problems and concerns and their best solution is a few dietary modifications they might have bounced around with FODMAPs diets and Mm -hmm. um, gluten-free diets but never really resolving things so they're unfortunately down the path of a lifetime on on uh, PPIs, the protein pump inhibitors, and uh, the H2 drugs to reduce the gastrointestinal symptoms such as heartburn, reflux, GERD, mm-hmm. uh, which are often an indication of that high acidity in the gut because of the inflammatory and you know poor digestive function. I think exactly. the key there, yeah, and the key is just to realise that you know if you do have gut problems, it is absolutely worth pursuing more and more questions tests of professionals don't give up because as your sister experienced if 20 years ago your parents hadn't pursued certain tests your sister would have failed to thrive from such a young age and may have been destined to a life of really chronic illness until someone came out and and figured it all out exactly so here's the problem conventional testing for celiac disease or gluten sensitivity look for the auto or or your antibodies or an immune reaction to specific parts of the gluten fraction or parts of the gluten. And let me just uh, specify, gluten is a protein that's found in particular grains, particularly wheat, barley, oats, and rye. Um, So they're what it's most prevalent in. Um, So without going into, you know, the really hardcore biochemistry, um, essentially these tests test for a reaction to a couple of different things. One is called the alpha-glidin and a specific type of um, gland transglutaminase. Um, So these are different parts of the gluten, right? Um, However, we now know that you can actually react to different antibodies to other or you can actually have different antibodies to other fractions of the gluten um, of the wheat protein um, and conventional testing doesn't actually pick that up so you can still have a negative test to celiac disease or gluten intolerance no matter the severity of your reaction um, and still test negative 
So unfortunately, there's no clear way of diagnosing gluten sensitivity. Um, and of course, when we've been looking into this down the science side of things, it's also very hard to come up with reliable numbers on just how common this problem is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because um, unless you are testing positive to that transglutaminase and, and the other um, fractions of that, it's not going to detect. So it's not specific enough to uh, give answers to most people who have the gluten sensitivity. Um, and then that leads us to the next part of, which is not celiac disease, but is the non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is the next uh, umbrella that this is where most people sit. And this is where people will present with a whole host of different symptoms. Um, and it can be anything from, you know, uh, tummy upsets, um, you know, almost like the classic uh, cluster of irritable bowel type symptoms. So constipation, diarrhea, going back and forth between the two, really severe bloating, um, you know, gas, uh, anything along that spectrum, but also other parts of the body are affected as well. And this is where you get possibly a non-gastrointestinal presentation as you don't have gastrointestinal symptoms but you could be experiencing things like your sister where you had legs or arms pains so there's joint pains you could have uh, been diagnosed with fibromyalgia for example mm -hmm. or fatigue syndromes migraines um, getting frequent episodes of anxiety and depression you know wavering mental health situations of course anemia and iron deficiency folate deficiency you may even have symptoms that seem like unrelated such as asthma or eating disorders or there's just so many variations here and the biggest challenge is saying when is this a gluten mediated response mm -hmm. or is it something else going on that we should be searching for and I think this is where we would say refer back to your medical practitioners have the appropriate testing done but in the absence of a diagnosis or a, a true result in the sense that they can clinically say this is the concern um, where you've been potentially been given a blanket term such as fibromyalgia then there's reasons to continue the search and continue asking more questions because even things like the way in which gluten can affect the brain you might actually present with what they call neuropsychiatric concerns and mm -hmm. they could be things like schizophrenia or autism um peripheral neuropathy where you're getting you know uh pains or, or symptoms in the limbs and you think well how can that possibly connect to the in consumption of gluten and this is why it is complex and this is why we tackled it today because we realize in practice as chiropractors we deal frequently with neurological presentations and I've certainly had my clients improve when they've changed their diet and some of their neurological side effects of the gluten sensitivity start to clear up you know knowing full well that it wasn't a spinal complaint they were presenting with figuring out well in the absence of all else if in doubt, rule it out. Yeah. So put them onto a gluten-restrictive diet so that they can actually see how their body responds in the absence of wheat or gluten. And curiously enough, they experience improvements. So this is why we're so passionate about saying, hey, if you don't have diagnosis, make sure you keep pursuing options and using elimination diets is a fantastic way of determining whether your health choices through foods are affecting the actual full spectrum of your health profile. And I think it's a really good question to ask is whether or not gluten is actually beneficial to us at all and whether or not uh, it might just be 
a healthful practice to eliminate it altogether? And, That's a great question. Uh, I know for me personally, I do not respond well to gluten. I am not a celiac. However, I certainly notice the difference in my system if I actually do have any exposure to gluten um, or any glutinous type products. So as a rule for me, I exclude it. I certainly uh, help my patients to move towards a gluten-free lifestyle as well because I've seen the healthful benefits for them too um, and especially for women because uh, especially as we age there's so many more um, conditions that any kind of uh, gastrointestinal conditions especially gluten sensitivity that is related to um, even on you know the the celiac uh, association or organization of australia it uh, very specifically lists um, the high risk factors for women developing osteoporosis if they do have a gluten sensitivity or celiac disease. So there's that comorbidity, one disease condition presenting with a secondary disease condition. And it's all to do with the malnutrition that occurs when there's that chronic inflammatory response within our system that then creates that intestinal permeability or the leaky gut syndrome that then means we can't absorb our food the way we want to or the way that we should that creates that perpetual inflammation in our body. Um, and really importantly for women, especially with any kind of hormonal disease, disorders we know that these type of things affect the endocrine system too and this is where men and women vary a lot in the presentation you might have classic gut symptoms but women can show up with much more specific female symptoms and like you're about to describe talking about the reproductive health element and how gluten can influence that yeah definitely so because of that chronic inflammation any inflammatory type conditions like endometriosis or pcos have a direct correlation between the gut health not only because a lot of our hormones you know from a base foundation are made within the gut and need a lot of those minerals to you know create the um, the foundation for them but because of the increased inflammation in the system and how that then goes on to affect all of our ovarian hormones as well and our ovarian function. Um, unexplained infertility is certainly something that is associated with these conditions as well. Even cyclic changes, you know, bleeding, heavy bleeding, painful periods, and you think, how is that possibly related? Again, goes back to the inflammatory processes within the body that have been mediated by your sensitivity to gluten. So just remember, gluten can't be completely broken down by the body through the gut enzymes. So those remaining molecules create a gut-mediated immune response, bringing in the antigens required to basically fight off the bad guys in the gut because that's what it's seen as. And unfortunately, if you leave an army of, you know, military army in the gut there trying to protect itself, a lot of other inflammatory markers throughout the body, systemic responses are happening as well. So you just said, is it worth cutting gluten out? Like, is it being overreactive or faddish to go and just be part of the fad, the new age culture of cutting out gluten? Or should we be looking at it at that biological molecular level saying, hang on, gluten is known to create an inflammatory response in the body, not just in some people, but in all people we have a degree of response to it. So in view of trying to reduce inflammation in the body, because we know inflammation is connected to just about every single major lifestyle disease, including cardiovascular disease, cancer, arthritic conditions, mental health conditions, even the inflammatory markers are found in people with dementia and Alzheimer's. Like we're dealing with not just the obvious, we're dealing with a spectrum of complex disorders 
that all have an underlying foundation and that is inflammation and you hear so much about alkalizing diets and alkaline water and alkalizing foods and green smoothies and green stuff and the reason that is is because it is a way in which the body can lower the inflammatory response and you'll notice now as well a lot of people are choosing to take turmeric and curcumin in place of anti-inflammatory drugs because they have an effective response in the body in lowering inflammation yeah so as far as, you know, should we eat gluten, should we not? Um, there's a bit of a movement for people moving away from our current uh, wheats that are grown nowadays. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that our current wheat, so today's wheat that is grown, is genetically modified. It's been hybridized. Um, there's a fantastic book um, by William Davis, uh, Dr. William Davis, called Wheat Belly, that essentially refers to today's wheat as this franken wheat so it's very very different to what it was originally compared to the ancient grains are we talking gmo or we're just talking about hybridized it's been hybridized and changed um throughout you know the the genetic uh interbreeding to create stronger yeah exactly and uh to make it more fluffy to make it more um appetizing to our western type diet so there is a bit of a movement for people looking at ancient type grains and whether or not the response for that is better to the body. Um, however, there was a study done at Harvard Med School that took three groups of people. One group was diagnosed with celiac disease, another was with known gluten sensitivity, um, and one group with no sensitivity whatsoever. They gave them servings of ancient wheat, um, today's hybridized or modified wheat, um, to determine if there was a difference between them, and there was not. All three groups reacted the exact same. So gluten response is gluten response, yeah. whether it be ancient or modern. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, I guess, the the replacement grains because there's a big shift in the gluten-free movement, um, which, I mean, just to remind you, the gluten-free foods market is a multi-billion dollar industry. So there's great incentive for them to get you to switch from gluten-based foods into gluten-free. And we're here to tell you that we don't think that's the option for health. And I disagree that gluten-free products on the shelf in the supermarket are a better alternative because there's a whole lot of other nasties involved in that packaged food. I'm absolutely an advocate for whole foods. That's just, you know, basic. Um, However, the gluten-free things, there's a big shift towards the pseudo-grains, so the amaranth and the quinoa. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And some of these things can actually mimic uh, gluten sensitivity as well. I know for me, I'm highly allergic to quinoa, um, and that was something that I built a tolerance to and then absolutely could not have it anymore and gave me similar gluten-like reactions. It'd be interesting to see too because the defense mechanism in plants, it's uh, called saponins, and these pseudo-grains are actually very high in those, which don't break down the gut. They're there to protect the grain from being ingested so that if it were animals to eat the grain, it went through the gut, it's actually protected and it'll pass through the gut and then seed itself wherever the animal droppings go. Yeah. And so the same response in the human gut system, we don't have the enzymes to break down these components. And again, that causes this gut-mediated inflammation and can lead to leaky gut symptoms. And that's probably exactly what you experienced when you switched over to what was not a gluten grain but it still had a inflammatory response and gave you symptoms similarly. So the take-home message for that is really just because something is gluten-free, especially if it's a replacement product, does not mean it's healthy. And yeah. if you look at the label, some of those things have got so many additives, so many chemicals, so many numbers that you will not recognize because they top them up to try and make them taste 
comparable to the glutinous products. And let's talk about a few other things that they fill them up with. Because, I mean, soy is a big one. That's a quick substitute into most gluten-free products. As women, we have great concerns about soy products because of the phytoestrogen effect, meaning it mimics estrogen in the body. And the potential is that it changes our hormonal balance and hormonal chemistry and correct regulation and production of estrogen, progesterone, and obviously testosterone as well because there's an engaged pathway there. (laughs) No secret about another absolute nasty and gluten-free product, sugar. Yeah. There's no no health secret there. I mean, that's just a, an obvious one because sugar isn't just about every gluten-free product because it's bumping up the, the tastiness of those products. Because they've still got to make them palatable. Uh, I remember when Joanna was first diagnosed, all you could buy that was gluten-free was gluten-free bread. Um, it looked like a brick. If you dropped it, it would uh, probably not bounce. But then once you sliced it, it crumbled completely. So, you know, we didn't have gluten-free bagels. We didn't have, um, you know, gluten-free Tim Tams and um, pasta and all of that sort of stuff. Her only option was gluten-free bread. And why would you bother? Because it was absolutely disgusting. But funny enough, they do say the only bread you should eat should be like a brick. And it's the only one that's made the right way without all the nasties and chemicals in it. And of course, we had a huge episode last week talking about oils and fats and uh, the effects they have on the body and the influence of vegetable oils in particular, which a lot of these products will have, such as canola, rapeseed, um, safflower, sunflower oils. These are really high in omega-6 fatty acids. And again, those um, PUFAs, PUFAs, unfortunately are going to mediate an inflammatory response in the body. Yeah, exactly. So our omega-6 to 3 ratios are already way too high anyway. Um, this is not a healthful food. This is not something you would want to look as a replacement. Um, so if you are considering a gluten-free diet, if you are you know, erring towards that side right now and your cupboard looks like it would with glutinous uh, grains in there but you just switched them over, have a look and read the packet. You'll probably be really surprised. Um, not to mention all the preservatives and all the additives that they've put in there to increase its shelf life and make it slightly palatable. I have a question for you, lovely listeners. If any of you have actually tried a gluten-free diet or going grain-free, have you noticed how difficult it is to get off grain-based products? Because it's showing that, um, I mean, a lot of people believe that wheat and gluten products are actually incredibly addictive, Mm. that we just can't get off them because we go for a period of time and then our brain starts to crave them. And even though at this point in time, it's far from being proven because there's no distinct studies saying, yes, there's an absolute link there. There are some studies suggesting that gluten may have addictive properties because there's some peptides that are produced in the breakdown of gluten that actually can activate what they call opioid receptors. Just exactly the way that sugar does as well. So it's a similar pathway that's activated. Um, All of those pleasure centers light up when you're eating those type of foods. And because we think that gluten can increase the permeability in the intestine through that leaky gut and inflammatory process, um, then it's also potentially possible that these uh, opioid, uh, uh, what would you say, influences will find their way into the bloodstream breaking through the blood-brain barrier and directly influencing brain tissue as well hence the reason that addictive propensity from uh, grain-based foods so look i think jury's out and of course that doesn't prove anything but i would suggest just given our day-to-day responses you know it you know what it feels like when you're just craving grains and you're craving sugars clearly there's an immune response happening there brain mediated response it's unfortunate that we tend to want things that are bad for us <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely but it doesn't last for too long and it certainly is changeable and if you are really really addicted to it all the more reason to get off it um, because you don't want to have that that constant reliance on it 
So I guess one of our take-homes from today, I think we've summed up that, you know, there's three different forms of uh, gluten responses, one being celiac, which is an autoimmune-made response. It's involving the genetic predisposition. Then we have gluten sensitivity, which I believe a lot of people fall into this category, and that's that non-celiac gluten sensitivity, or NCGS. This is where if you're eating gluten on a regular basis, then you take it out of your diet and lifestyle, you start to feel better. Mm-hmm. The symptoms start to go away, and within two weeks, you're saying, to notice distinct changes in your health profile because you're starting to feel better as that inflammatory marker goes down. However, it can still take a couple of months to repair the gut after this immune response. Then there's the third one, which is a true wheat allergy, and that is the response no different to if you had peanuts or shellfish allergy or strawberry allergy. It's an anaphylactic response, generally speaking, and that includes respiratory dysfunction, um, swelling, skin, rash, all the side effects of an anaphylactic response. So if someone says, I'm allergic to wheat, I always caution them and say, is it a true allergy, as in you require an EpiPen to survive the response, or is it just simply you're sensitive to it and your gut responds poorly, or is it celiac? Because it's sometimes very hard. We just throw around when you're at a restaurant, oh, I'm allergic to glu- I'm allergic to wheat, I'm allergic to gluten. But let's clarify that a bit better so that people can understand a little bit better what's happening. And remember that the testing for it isn't that accurate, okay? Uh, So my suggestion and the the best way I see it is actually doing a bit of an elimination and then a provocation test. So you want to eliminate all the sources of gluten um, and it's a lot more prevalent than you might might think because it's actually used in a whole bunch of other stuff rather than just the grains that we mentioned, so wheat, barley, um, oats and rye. It's also in things like soup mixes, it's fillers in salad dressing sauces, lollies, chocolate, ice creams. Um, goods it's it's a lot you can go to celiac.com to get you know a really robust list but also sometimes it's fillers in medications and supplements as well so be really careful what you need to do is you need to actually eliminate completely for a minimum of 30 days at least 30 days and you've got to be vigilant so you can't just do this 99% because if you do still have um, a bit of an autoimmune response or inflammatory response from this and you're still having you know a crumb or a mouthful here and there it's not going to give you a uh, you know a, a baseline to work off when you do that elimination so, so cut it out all or nothing approach completely for at least 30 days and then your provocation test is where you start to reintroduce some things, okay? And go one step at a time. What you will notice is you will start to have a return of your symptoms. And over that time, especially during the elimination period, I want you to really uh, look at not just your gastrointestinal symptoms. Okay, so do your bowel movements change? Um, do you have less bloating, less gas? But what does your head feel like? Are you having less head fog? Is your memory and concentration improved? Um, are you finding that your skin is feeling a lot better? Um, you know, uh, that, that celiac um, or, or wheat skin is like the, the little bumpy, almost like chicken skin um, that, that's associated with oh, little dotty bits on the back yeah, of the arms yeah. that people get yeah. around the elbows and the back of the, the tricep area. Yeah, absolutely. Has um, the dark circles under your eyes, has this reduced? Make a note of all of those things. And again, when you reintroduce, are some of these starting to creep back in? Um, so that is how you do a true elimination provocation challenge to see whether or not you do actually have um, a response to gluten. And look, most of the population does. Yeah, whether so... Whether or not you want to admit it, <laughs> most of the population does. Yeah. Um, and it is uh, seen as such a fad. It's almost cool, you know, not to be gluten-free <laughs> these days just because of that. Um, however, I love the, um, you know, this analogy where uh, if you've got a really clean system, if you add 
something in that's a toxin, you're really going to know it. Whereas if your body is full of it, it's very hard to identify those things because you're so used to functioning subpar. So it's almost like if you've got a really dirty windscreen on your car and then you're adding dust or dirt onto it, you're not really going to notice it. This sounds like my sunglasses at the beach. <laughs> I'm <laughs> so used to my sunglasses being salt sprayed uh, that when I, I finally I... wash them and clean them, I'm like, oh, so that's that's how the world should look. Exactly. It's the same, same sort of concept. I cannot remember who I can attribute this uh, analogy to because I can't remember where it came from. But whereas if you've got a really clean screen so you've got a really clean system if you add some dust or some dirt onto there you're going to see it straight away so you see a bug flat straight up <laughs> so this is why some people can be walking around going oh no i have absolutely no problem to to gluten or to other foods they may or may not know him uh all right so this is how you do your elimination provocation challenge um i would certainly suggest that just for your own benefit give it a try um and if you don't notice uh, any response after your 30 days let us know we would love to hear what your experiences are with it along with those tips to if you are really struggling with these food sensitivities try and reduce your toxic exposure Okay, so let's lessen the load on our immune system and on our body. Um, you can go back and listen to all of uh, our podcasts on getting rid of all of the toxins from your household. That was our first couple of episodes, actually. I yeah. think somewhere in episode three or four, it was talking about clean home, clean green lifestyle and how to remove some of the xenoestrogens out of your lifestyle that are affecting all well, the hormone disruptors, which, of course, again, inflammatory responses in the body. Good advice. Great advice. Um, remember, nothing takes place of a really robust immune system. So boosting your immune system is certainly going to help no matter what. Um, so make sure that you're getting plenty of rest. Um, you're allowing your body to rest and rejuvenate. You've got a diet that's rich in your whole foods, lots of veggies, lots of color, um, not artificial colors, of course, not, not numbers, but lots of good, rich colored vegetables where you're going to get all those phytonutrients that are health, you know, have health benefits for the body and are immune boosting as well. Awesome. So look, ladies, if you're having gut issues, if you're having hormonal imbalance issues, if you've been diagnosed with celiac disease and you're still having troubles with management, consult someone who can help you. Don't do this alone. Make sure you speak to a naturopath or a trusted dietitian, someone who can guide you. Again, chat to your integrated health practitioner. There's lots of GPs out there now that are integrated medicine. They're looking at ways through food and lifestyle, not just pharmaceuticals, to help you get better and thrive, not just survive so if you've loved this episode please go onto itunes give us a star rating of course five stars if you think we deserve it we're here every week to try and answer some of the concerns and questions you have with your health and well-being um, go onto our facebook page www.facebook.com forward slash the wellness women and get in touch with us we really look forward to chatting to you again next week have an amazing week be well this has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.